Open your Bibles this morning, please, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. As a parent and a pastor, it's only natural that uh, I have a desire to encourage those folks that I, that I love so dearly. And that's one of the reasons that I make it a habit to often say, the best is yet to come. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Because regardless of how bad it is right now, we know that the best is yet to come. But while the best is yet to come, we need to understand that it will be preceded by the worst. I'm talking about worldwide now. And uh, we need to understand that when we say the best is yet to come, we're talking about Christian people. But the fact of the matter is, for those that are not saved, for them, the very worst is yet to come. And that ought to break our heart. But there's something else that we need to know in regards to Christians. Before the best comes, conditions on earth are going to get worse and worse. And we see that here in this chapter this morning. And when I think about how you know bad things are right now and all the confusion that's going on in the world today, I, I just wish I could say to my kids and my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, uh, don't worry. Everything's going to be all right. You don't have anything to worry about. Uh, the world's going to get better. Life's going to be easier. Uh, I wish I could say that, but the fact of the matter is that would be a lie because they're facing challenging times ahead. And that's just a fact that the Bible makes very clear. That's not my opinion. That's what the Word of God says. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13 says, Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So we know that's what's coming down the road. I can't give you any of the dates. I can't give you the rate of, of progression in this. But I can tell you that it's all downhill from here. We're not going to create a utopia here upon this earth. There will one day be a glorious kingdom set up on this earth, but that's, that's way in the future when the Lord is reigning. But we're not going to create such a kingdom for ourselves. But, so there's a lot of things we don't know. We don't know how bad it's going to get, but there's some things that we do know, and that's what we need to cling to. We do know that for the Christian that the Lord is coming and we're going. Amen. Paul said the dead in Christ shall rise first and we which are alive and remain shall be called up together to meet them in the clouds of the air. Thank God for that. That's what the Bible calls our blessed hope. But before that happens, I want to tell you what to expect. And I want you to notice in Matthew 24... And verse number 6 is our text this morning. The Lord says, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. 
For all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, this is a part of our Lord's discourse on the Mount of Olives. And if you look back at the last chapter, you find something very sad. And that is the Lord, as He is speaking to the children of Israel, is shutting the door on their opportunity at that time. He, he ended up, as, as in verse 37, He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen, her chickens under her wings, and ye would not behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Now notice, he says, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of of the Lord. Our Lord had ministered to them. He had demonstrated the greatness of His power, the purity of His life, and over and over He had urged them, as John the Baptist did, to repent. And over and over again they rejected Him, and now it's as though He is saying, I have shut the door on this personal opportunity for you during this time and uh, walks away from them. But then we come to chapter 24, and it commences here with a picture of destruction in the first two verses. Then it continues on with the perplexity of the disciples in verse number 3. They're scratching their head and wondering what in the world is going on because as they've been standing there admiring the beautiful temple, the Lord uh, tells them that not one stone was going to be left. This place is going to be turned upside down. It's going to be destroyed. And so they ask the question there in verse number uh, 3. But then we come to verse 4, all the way down through verse number 31, and we see the chapter concludes with these prophecies. And the last section begins here by speaking about the present age that we live in today. That's verses 4 through 8. It's important that you understand that there is a, a change when you get to verse 9 because you move from this present age to the tribulation period itself in verse number 9. But today, I want you to focus on verse number 6. And there are four things about this that you need to take note of. First of all, we see a sad report. He says, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. War is a terrible thing. And, and, and over and over again throughout history, we know that there have been conflicts one after another. In fact, there's been seldom been any any periods of peace upon this earth. Somewhere, some nation is at war with another nation. And in this world of confusion, this world of corruption, that's what we can expect. There's going to be conflict. A world where, where there's the absence of love and you're going to have consequently the conflict that results from that and and as I said, it's existed since the fall of man. But notice that this statement is in response 
to the disciples' question in verse number 3. And I want, you to, I want you to notice exactly what they said. As he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So here they're expressing their perplexity about the situation, and they do so in the form of asking these two questions. Tell us, when shall these things be? Now, I want you to notice that our text, however, verse 6, is preceded with a warning to them in verse 4 and 5 about being deceived. Because before he answers the question, he says, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So we can expect that there are going to be false teachers. We can expect that there's going to be misinformation. We can expect that there's going to be heresy. We can expect that there's going to be confusion. And the Lord is saying, you be careful lest you are deceived. And we live in a, in a world of deception. That is perhaps the chief tool of Satan himself to deceive us, to hide the truth from us. So here we see this warning about the danger of deception that we ought to guard against. But then, after this very sad opening statement here by the Lord, we see a shocking requirement. He says that ye see that, that, that you are not troubled. See that you're not troubled. Now remember, this is in response to what he says is coming. We're talking about war, bloodshed, heartache, and all of the attendant things that go along with war. And he says, see that ye be not troubled. That word trouble there means to cry aloud. It means to be frightened. It means to be alarmed. And I, I call this, I call this a, a shocking requirement because it goes against the grain of our human nature. Because it's only natural when we look at a situation that is that bad that our heart is troubled, that we are worried, that we are fearful and what have you. And so we think that we have a legitimate complaint. We think that we are justified in our response to be very troubled indeed by all of this. But for the Christian, that is not the proper response to the problems of this world God expects better from us. So the fact of the matter is, if you're troubled, stop it. Stop it. You say, well, I can't. Well, notice he said, see that, that, you're, that ye be not troubled. In other words, there is something to, that we can do about it. In John chapter 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. And the fact that he says, let not, indicates that there, it is within the realm of possibility for God's people to not be troubled by their troubles. We don't have to sit back and wring our hands with sweat on our brow and, and worry and fret about all of the problems in this world. Now the reason, the reason that the Lord imposes this requirement upon us is the fact that He is well aware as to the, the danger 
the, the problem of fear. He knows that fear will paralyze us. Fear will prevent us from doing our duty. Fear will keep us from being faithful. And if we're going to be faithful to God, if we're going to meet the requirements that He's given us, then we must, we must not be troubled. Because again, I say, it will literally paralyze us. To some people, this seems like an impossible task, right? I mean, we're convinced that, that fear is legitimate. We're justified in dodging our duties, ignoring our responsibilities. But Jesus is saying just the opposite of that. He promised us that peace is possible. Again, referring back to, to the Gospel of John, the, the Lord says, My peace I give unto you. That, that is, He said, Not as the world giveth give I unto you, but my peace. Do you suppose there was ever a time that our Lord was paralyzed by fear? Do you suppose there was ever a time that He was so confused about the situation that he neglected his responsibility. Do you suppose there was ever a time in his life where our Lord was so upset, so distraught about his comfort level that he ignored the needs of others? Well, you know the answer to that. And there we find our example. Have you ever thought about the difficulties that the apostles faced and the early churches uh, the great difficulties that they went through. And the Lord warned them ahead of time. He said, you're going to be hated. You're going to be despised. You're going to be persecuted. You're even going to be murdered. And yet, He sent them on their mission nevertheless. I, I want you to let that sink in. The Lord, knowing full well, I'm sending these people that I love so dearly, I'm sending them into the lion's den. I'm sending them into the Colosseums. I, I'm sending them into the very face of persecution. They're going to be mistreated. And as you probably well know, that is exactly what happened to the apostles as they were martyred for the cause of Christ. Why would the Lord do something like that for people that He loves so much? Well, the answer is because God so loved the world. Amen? The entire world. And He's so concerned about the needs of the world that He chooses these, His followers, and sends them into this great danger, as we would call it. And it was all a part of their mission over in Matthew chapter number 10, verse 16. He says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. I don't know how that strikes you, but that, that just doesn't sound right. I mean, that is the, that's the opposite of what we normally picture when we think about wolves and, and sheep, right? We think about a, a wolf sneaking in among the sheep and looking for a weak one and, and killing it. That's the picture. 
But that's not the picture the Lord's painting here. He says, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Here you've got a whole pack of wolves out here and you're a little sheep. And he says, I'm sending you right there in the middle of them. That's an entirely different picture than a wolf being in among the flock of sheep. The sheep sent right into the pack of wolves. And to the natural mind, we think that's insane. Because a sheep doesn't stand a chance in a place like that. They have no hooking horns, no cutting teeth. They have no claws. They have absolutely no way to defend themselves against the, against the wolves. And yet the Lord says, I'm going to send you in among the wolves. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me that Christ expects his followers to be willing to sacrifice everything for his sake. And isn't that what the Bible says over and over again about discipleship? That if you want to be my disciple, you must be willing to forsake all in order to follow me. You must hate your own life. And even in comparison to our, our love for the Lord, he says that you would hate your father and your mother, brothers and sisters. I, I mean, there's no comparison. We love the Lord, you know, so much more that it is though that that our relation with others is as, as hatred. He's not telling you to hate your parents at all. But we're drawing a contrast here between uh, the greatness of our love for the Lord and our love for the Lord would cause us to be willing to make whatever sacrifice He requires. But that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that he's going to put us through the same suffering as somebody else. It's not what he's saying. But we've got to be willing to do that. And, and keep in mind, if you're one of the sheep that he's sending you in among the wolves, whatever danger, whatever difficulty there might be, and it makes no difference what it is, the discomfort, the danger, the difficulty... None of those things excuse us from our duty, from our responsibility. So I say it's a shocking requirement that the Lord says, see that you be not troubled. As Christians, we ought to, we, we ought to exude a, a peace that, that, that is obvious to us. Oh, I, I know that your neighbor probably think you're crazy. He think you lost your mind. But I'll guarantee you it'll make an impression on others when they see that the troubles of this world is not causing you to lose the joy of your salvation and the peace that only God can provide. Look, if we're going to be a testimony to others, it's not just what we say, it's what they see. Not just what we preach, it's what we practice. And whenever they see us living out living out those requirements that God has put upon us, then it makes an impression. When they see us willing to make those sacrifices, willing to give up our comfort for the sake of others, because it's like the old saying, they don't care how much you know, they know how much you care. doesn't make any difference to your neighbor. You can be the most knowledgeable Bible scholar in the county, but they don't care about that. 
but they care about whether you care or not. That gets their attention. And then notice there is a sure reality in this verse. He says, for all these things must come to pass. You know, if you believe becoming a Christian is going to solve all of your problems, you've been deceived. And believe me, there are false teachers that have promoted the idea that the Christian life can be something that is prosperous, it's carefree, it's full of fun, and boy, that appeals to people. I mean, you can have your best life right now. The best isn't yet to come. You can have your best life right now. Well, let me tell you, if that's your best life, it's not a life worth living. It's really not. God has something better than that for us. And it's not about us living our best life now. It's not about us having fun and games and being comfortable. But it's about us loving our Lord to the extent that we're willing to follow His demands regardless of the difficulty involved. And following Christ can be costly. As I just mentioned, think about, think about the apostles Think about those early churches, especially to those to whom Paul wrote that had been persecuted and, and so forth. All as a result of their stand for the truth. And what so many have done today is to create a, a, a type of Christianity, to create a religion, as it were, that is based upon their desires rather than our Lord's demands. Right? And, but notice the Lord says, look, it, it's going to get bad, fellas. And I'm sending you out there as sheep in among the wolves. And, and notice what he says here. He says that these things will come to pass, but they must come to pass. He didn't say they might. He said they must come to pass. Why is he so emphatic about that? Why must these things happen? And the disciples were confused because they have been wondering all along whenever they discover the Messiah that He has come. And they're thinking, and they expressed this, they believed originally that He's going to set up His kingdom on earth right now. He'll get us out from under the iron heel of the Roman government. We'll be free at last. Great God Almighty, we'll be free at last. And we can rejoice. And that's what we've been waiting on, the Messiah to come. And so whenever he comes and all of a sudden they learn he's going to Jerusalem and suffer many things and then be nailed to a cross and die, no wonder they're confused about that. They, they've missed out on the fact that the kingdom has not yet come upon this earth. The kingdom of God is now within you. The kingdom upon this earth is going to come later. And so, so we have so many that, you know, that want it to be simple and want it to be easy. And the Lord says it's not going to be like that. These things must come to pass. Why? Why could he not just usher in uh, the kingdom age? They must come to pass. Well, in the first place, they must come to pass because God can't lie. He said that there's going to be wars and rumors of war. This is the way it's going to be. God can't lie. It's going to happen. God tells us that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. It's going to happen. 
whether we want it to or not, whether we believe it or not, it's going to happen. God can't lie. That's why it must come to pass. It must come to pass because God allows it. God allows it. As I say so often that God appoints everything or God allows it, but nothing is by accident. And God also uses it. And that's the part that we forget so often. We know it must happen because God can't lie. We know that God is is the one and the only one that can allow something like that to happen. But we get really confused about how God is going to use something that is so bad for something that is good. But He is able to do that, right? Amen. He's the only one that can. And then also, it must come to pass so we'll know what to expect. This is not a pretty picture that the Lord is painting them here. It's not meant to be. He wanted them to understand the severity of the problem. He wants them to know what to expect, that they might be prepared Preparation is an important thing about us serving the Lord. You, you know, some, that, that's half the victory right there because if we're not prepared, we're preparing to lose. And if they don't know what's coming, they're not going to be ready for it. If you just walk up to somebody standing there and they don't see you, it doesn't take much at all to just literally shove them, knock them off of their feet. But if they see what's coming, they can scotch their feet and square their shoulders and tense up their muscles and uh, you, you can't knock them over at all. You see, whenever we know what is, what is coming, we know what to expect. We're not surprised by it. And we can prepare for it. Look, we are in a spiritual war against an unseen enemy stronger than all of us. There's no way that we can survive except for the fact that we, that we put on what? The armor of God. Indeed, God tells us how bad it's going to be. He doesn't minimize that. He doesn't cause us to follow Him under false pretense. He's up front, bold and clear about it. It's going to be tough. It might cost you your life. But if we're going to get the job done, this is what it's going to require. But then there's something else at the very close of our text this morning that speaks about a season remaining, a season that yet remains. Notice he says, but the end is not yet. The end is not yet. Now let me give you something that is extremely important for you to realize Whatever you do, don't be misled by those who continually talk about the signs of the times and the signs pointing to the coming of the Lord because there is no sign pointing to the rapture, none. The disciples were taught to expect the Lord's return at any moment, right? He could come at any time. Nothing has to happen. He could come today before this message is over. He could come before you pillow your head tonight. 
we don't know when he's coming. He hasn't told us that he's going to come as a thief in the night and suddenly he's going to come not to this earth but in the clouds of the air and we're going to be called up to meet the Lord in the air. That could happen at any time. There are those that have suggested very strongly that in the letters to the seven churches in Asia there in Revelation 2 and chapter 3, that those churches, each one, represent a different period of church history. There's some very well-known Bible scholars who teach that. Let me tell you, there's not a word of truth to that. They say, we're in the age of the Laodiceans. In other words, we're in the final stages, the last of it, you see. And yet the Bible tells us that Christ could come at any time. Right? And, and, and the things that our Lord is speaking of here is a description of the wicked ways of the world. He's talking about the course of the world, not the conclusion of the world. They want to know, what, what is the sign? When are these things going to happen? But then there was a second question, and of the end of the world there. So we are living in a period of time of unknown duration between our text and the end of the world. And, and, and consequently, we have this season that remains. It's a season of opportunity. Remember, the, the Lord said, The night cometh when no man can work. Right now, the door is open. When the Lord comes, this is where a lot of folks get confused. When the Lord comes and takes His people out of this world, then begins a seven-year period tribulation period and there are certain, there are signs during that time because he describes the events I mean we know precisely I, I mean even when he talks about the, the peace pact that is made you know and of course they make this peace treaty uh, uh, with Israel and after three and a half years it is broken so we know the first half of the tribulation is not, not as bad as the second half because the second half the Lord describes as a time unlike anything this world has ever seen. It will be the very worst time imaginable. Now during that time, over and over, we see prophetic descriptions of what's going to happen and whenever we talk about that we believe the nearness of the Lord is drawing near, this is what we mean by that. We see these mountain peaks of prophecy that relate to the tribulation. That's going to happen over here during that seven-year period. We're not going to be here. But we already, we already are seeing indications or signs of the things that the Lord said will happen. We often hear people talk about a one-world church. Do you realize there are people that are working for that right now, feverishly working to, for a one-world church? Let's get the, everybody together and just, you know, after all, we worship the same God, they say, and so let's all get together and we'll have a one-world religion, one-world government. Believe me, there are people that are working for that day and night. 
And we know that under the reign of the Antichrist during the tribulation, that's what's coming down the pike. And those that do not receive the mark of the beast during that time, not be able to buy, not be able to sell, what do you do? Well, you starve if you can't find anything to eat. We see all of these things coming. So indeed, there is evidence, you know, that the Lord is coming. But nothing has to happen for him to come even today. Now, the reason I mention all of that is because of the fact that sometimes we get confused about why the Lord is, is giving this information here. We get the idea that the main reason is that he's setting up these signs for his return. That's not what he's doing at all. If you look at the entire chapter, and especially when you consider how he left off in chapter 23, closing the door on Israel at that time, when you look at all of that, it becomes obvious that the purpose of our text this morning here is to spur us to action in our service for the Lord. Because we have no way of knowing how long these things are going to continue. We have no way of knowing how bad it's going to get before the rapture takes place. But knowing that He is coming and that it is a sure thing, that ought to produce within every child of God a passion for pleasing God. It ought to be a motivation for our ministry. Jesus said, the night's coming when no man can work. We have this season of time that God has given us. and We must put our hands to the plow and not look back and do what we can while we can because the time is coming when this door of opportunity is going to be shut. And it ought to matter to us. It ought to matter so much that there is even a cleansing of our, of our conduct. Peter talks about the coming of the Lord and he says, in light of all of this, what manner of person should we be? You know, how should we then live? Well, we ought to live a whole lot different than what most of us are, are living. Simply the Lord's way of saying, look, we don't have any time to waste. And you know, I've just got to believe that there is something terribly wrong with the attitude of a lot of Christians today. Over in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, it says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And there are so many that just yawn. Oh, yeah, I heard that. How can it be that we are not affected by the reality that our Lord is coming back? Notice, he says, that's the blessed hope. He says, that glorious appearing of who? Our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for some reason, we've, we, we've gone to sleep. I remember a time when I started out preaching over 50 years ago. I remember a time where you, every revival meeting, you could depend on it. Every revival meeting, there would be at least one night devoted to the subject of prophecy. 
It was common to hear preachers. In fact, there were daily radio broadcasts that, that was totally dedicated to prophecy. All about the coming of the Lord. And today, nobody seemingly even wants to talk about it. And it's hard to understand something that is so certain, something that is so glorious, and that we are not seemingly not even moved to action as a result of it. Oh, we, we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we live as though that we don't have anything to do or that there is no day of accountability. If the thought of the Lord's return doesn't, if that doesn't stir you, if it doesn't touch your heart in some way, if it doesn't move you, there's something horribly wrong in your life. I love the way John, when he closes out the book of Revelation, he says, even so come Lord Jesus. Stop and think about it. When's the last time? When's the last time? Oh, I know that folks that are afraid. I just, oh, I just wish the Lord would come, you know. And all they can think about is all their terrible problems and they just want out of it. That's kind of like saying, I wish I was dead. It's a whole different thing whenever we say, even so come Lord Jesus. Set up your kingdom here on this earth. Rule with your rod of iron. Let, let peace and righteousness flow like a, like a river throughout the nations of earth. That's where our heart's desire ought to be. And, and we have this season of opportunity that we're living in. And all around us there are those that are lost and undone. You know, I, I'm not overly impressed or concerned about how many people walk down the aisle at the invitation. Whether you do that or not, I hope, I hope when you leave here, the very thought of our Lord's return, His coming, and your unsaved loved ones, I hope it drives you to your knees in prayer. I hope it sends you to, if need be, to their house and to witness to them. Because the Bible says when the Lord comes, there'll be two in the field, one will be taken and the other left. There'll be two in the bed, one taken and the other left. Think about that. Family members ripped apart. Here is, a, here is a dear woman, a wife that has dedicated her life to serving God with an unsaved husband. And when the Lord comes, she'll be taken and he'll be left. Oh, it's a, it's a glorious time for those of us that are saved. But it seals the fate of those that are left. Because the Bible tells us in the letter to the Thessalonians, they'll believe the lie of the Antichrist. Have you ever wondered, how, how's the world going to explain away the sudden disappearance of all of these Christian people? Well, in the first place, there's not as many Christian people as you might think in this world. The Bible says, straight is the gate and narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. But it will be a problem. Suddenly all these people disappear. How do you explain that? 
Well, the Antichrist is going to step on the scene. This is the fellow that's going to help make that peace pact. This is the fellow that's seemingly going to have all of the answers. And, and he tells us that they will believe the lie of the Antichrist. Because we get it in our mind that, oh, well, you know, even if they're unsaved, after the Lord comes, they'll see that the Christians are gone, and then they'll respond to that by acting on the information that they've had, and they'll get saved. No, they won't. They'll believe the lie of the Antichrist, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in convicting them will be removed from them. Their fate will be sealed at that point. That doesn't mean nobody will be saved during the tribulation because we know there's going to be 144,000 Jews we know that are going to be saved, but those are people that have never heard the gospel. You see, you'd be better off to never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ than to hear it and reject it. That's why the Lord says some will be beaten with many stripes and some with few. Hell is awful and it's terrible, but it's a whole lot worse for those that have heard the gospel over and over and over again and rejected it. If you're here today or if you're listening online and you've, and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to do that right now because you don't know when the Lord's going to come. This is your day of opportunity Jesus said, Oh, Israel, Israel, how many times I would have gathered you under my wings just like a chicken with her chicks, and ye would not. Don't be so foolish as those Israelites when they rejected him. Wherever you are, whoever you are, regardless of what you've done, you can become a child of God today by simple faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, let this be a motivation for our ministry. Let this be the thing that that gives us a passion and a drive when it comes to being faithful to the Lord because we have this season that very well could come to an end before sunsets tonight. May we do what we can while we can. Let us pray. Father, how we thank you, dear Lord, for the glorious provision that you've made in the person of your dear Son. For the assurance that we can have that our sins have been forgiven, that our name's been written down in the Lamb's book of life, that we have a place reserved in heaven and acceptance before you. We're so thankful for all of those wonderful things, Lord. And yet we realize at this very moment there are millions of people that do not have such a hope. People that have never heard the gospel and folks that have heard it and rejected it over and over again. God, may we not grow weary in well-doing. May we be willing to put aside our comfort to go out and do our very best to meet the needs of those that are lost. Help us to speak to somebody about Jesus while we can. So bless us here this morning. We don't deserve it, but Lord, we 
we sure need your blessings upon our lives for without you we can do nothing may no one walk away from this service today without having their their spiritual needs met may you be glorified in in what transpires in their life today for we beg it in jesus dear name amen god bless you, you